Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Hadith, the vast corpus of Arabic traditions that recount the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. The word Hadith, sometimes pronounced Hadith, literally means news or reports. Specifically, reports of what the Prophet Muhammad said or what the Prophet Muhammad did. As such, the Hadith are second in authority only to the Quran among Muslims worldwide. Originally collected as oral traditions by the early followers of Muhammad, over the subsequent centuries these Hadith were written down, and by the early centuries of Islam they come to number literally hundreds of thousands of written traditions of what Muhammad thought and what he did. Over the next 45 minutes, we're going to be discussing what the Hadith are and what they're for. We'll be looking at the question of how the Hadith were collected and how their interpretation evolved over the centuries of Muslim existence, in which Muslims from different parts of the world developed new religious questions, new moral questions, new economic and political questions, and how the Hadith were called upon to solve and intervene in these debates about how to live a moral life. We'll be looking at the question of how debates evolved, how different and varied readings of the Hadith emerged, and how conflicts sometimes emerged on what Muhammad really said, or really meant, or really did. We'll also be looking at the often overlooked role of women as collectors and interpreters of Hadith. And finally, we'll be turning to the question of how the study and interpretation of the Hadith changed and evolved in modern times. Joining me in this discussion is Asma Saeed, an Associate Professor in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA and Director of the Programme in Islamic Studies at UCLA, which is the oldest such programme in the United States. Among her many articles, she's the author of the book Women and the Transmission of Religious Knowledge in Islam which is published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Hello, Asma. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hey, Niall. It's good to be here, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. Well, today we're going to be talking about the Hadith, and the Hadith we might briefly define as the traditions recorded of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did. But... There's evidently a great deal more to be said about the Hadith than that. So perhaps we can start off by asking you what more fully are the Hadith and indeed what are they used for? Okay, um, that is a very good place to start and I think that you stated the simple definition quite accurately um, as uh, a record of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. 
I'll add to that a tiny bit. I mean, the most simple definition really is that it's a statement or a report of the sayings, actions, or decisions of Prophet Muhammad. And Muslims generally think about it in those three categories, that is sayings, actions, and decisions. And they generally come in what is known as a standard form. And that standard form is divided into two parts. The first being the substantive content of the hadith or the text of the hadith, and that in Arabic is called the matan. And the second part of that form is the chain of transmitters um, or the people who narrated the hadith from the Prophet Muhammad onwards. And that chain of transmitters in Arabic is referred to as the isnad. And typically what you'll find is an isnad the Prophet Muhammad said to his wife, or actually it's, it's backwards, it's um, Aisha, his, uh, one of his wives, reported on the authority of the Prophet, of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad X, Y, and Z. And uh, hadith texts are numerous. Um, there, uh, if you include both authoritative uh, authentic hadith and those that are not so authoritative, there are tens of thousands of them. And this business about authoritative, authentic, fabricated, I will return to it hopefully later in the conversation. It's a complex topic. I won't get into it uh, here. Um, but some more definitional uh, concepts. There is, I think hadith is one of the most difficult terms to learn sometimes uh, for non-Muslims. There's some confusion here because for non-Muslims, both the Quran and the hadith are the words of Muhammad. Uh, and so non-Muslims sometimes see the Quran and Hadith as interchangeable texts. So it's important to clarify from the beginning that Muslims believe the Quran to be the word of God, that is, uh, God is the author of the Quran, and Hadith, generally speaking, are authored by humans. Um, and practically speaking, the form of the Hadith helps us identify it as such. That is, if you're trying to figure out if something is a Hadith or verse from the Quran, you would look for that phrase that the Prophet said or did something, and you'd also try to find a chain of transmitters. And Hadith are probably amongst the two or the most important sources of Islamic law, doctrine, and theology. And this is an important point because, again, many people who are new to the study of Islam think that the Quran has details on all manner of things, that it is something of a recipe book for Muslims, and it's not. The Quran is actually silent on the vast majority of topics that might be of interest to Muslims in their daily practice of religion, um, and on the details of doctrine and theologies. So the hadith supplies all of these details. And it's helpful sometimes to think about in terms of concrete examples and genres of hadith. So there are hadith that are more theological in nature, there are hadith that are legal in nature, um, and then there are hadith that we might just call historical hadith that supply us with details about the Prophet's preferences on all manner of things, from what he liked to eat to what he liked to wear, how he slept, etc. 
And um, I want to just give an example or a few examples of types of hadith. Uh, in terms of general injunctions, one very widely circulated hadith is, uh, goes something like this, that seeking knowledge is incumbent on every Muslim, male or female. And this is um, a hadith that is probably known in all corners of the Muslim world. And even, even though it's very simple, it has become what we might say is a bedrock or a really important pillar of Islamic uh, pedagogical practice and philosophy. Um, another hadith, and I'll actually end on this um, uh, example, is one that is known as the Hadith of Gabriel. Again, probably known every community, every corner of the Muslim world. It's a beautiful hadith. I mean, it's, it takes a longer narrative form, and it's essentially a story of how the archangel Gabriel appeared in human form before Muhammad and a number of his companions. It gives a very nice description of what Gabriel looked like in human form and how he interacted with Muhammad and his companions to convey the basics of faith, practice, and to warn the companions of um, the reality of an afterlife. And so this hadith, even though it's long, is learned by Muslim school children all over the world and is, uh, as I said, one of the most well-known hadith. So those are examples of the types of hadith that we might find in Muslim tradition. Well, that's fascinating. And what you've explained to us is that a hadith contains these two crucial elements. One is perhaps what we might expect, the, the exemplary action or, or mm -hmm. saying or approbation, do this or perhaps don't do that, or what Prophet Muhammad said or did. But equally important in the hadith is this other element then, which is the isnad, as you call it, I-S-N-A-D in English, the, the chain of transmission, which is to say how we know that Muhammad said or did this because we have a, a trustworthy chain of transmission of A said that B said that C said over the centuries. And what that shows us that, that, that both of these parts, the matan, as you said, M-A-T-N in English, the actual text of what Muhammad said or did, and the chain of transmission, the, the isnad, that both of these are equally important essential parts of, of, of any given individual hadith, shows us that this, this question of authenticity of reliability is absolutely crucial from the earliest periods of Islamic history. And of course what that's implying by, 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 by definition in turn really of authenticity is that there must be inauthentic, spurious hadith that early Muslims are very much aware of and they're trying to root out. So it's, it's that dilemma really of the being, as you said, thousands, even tens of thousands of these hadiths, these reports of what the Prophet said or did, amongst which Muslims have to, or indeed scholarly Muslims, or increasingly as we'll see specialists, have to work out well which are the reliable. And indeed, what is the methodology for working out which of them are reliable and which are not? Because we'll see so much comes to rely upon the hadith that ultimately they become the mechanism for, as you've already hinted, the formation of, of Islamic law and indeed for ways of actually interpreting the Quran or filling in the many gaps of, of yes. what the Quran doesn't, uh, doesn't discuss. So perhaps now you could talk us through the, the formation of what we might call the, the methodology or the disciplines of Hadith studies 
as they evolve in the centuries after the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632. And it's really over the next 200 years, really, isn't it, that we start to have the, the formation of, of a, a body of Hadith specialists and a set of methodologies and indeed the what become, we might call, let's say, the canonical collections of, uh, of more reliable and indeed in some cases less reliable Hadith. So, again, this is, you know, there is a tremendous amount of complexity here and I will focus on, for the purposes of this conversation, the more simplified version, again, with the understanding um, that is very much in my mind as I'm speaking that this simplified version is contested at just about every single point of it. So it's good to uh, begin with this overview, I think this historical overview with um, with the beginning, that is right after the death of Muhammad, um, and then to sketch out over the centuries what happened in terms of what is called the proliferation, growth, canonization of hadith. And uh, Muslim scholars, as well as non-Muslim scholars who have looked at this history, tend to divide it into very neat stages, I think overly neat stages of transmission and then uh, compilation, then uh, canonization and interpretation. And I say this is overly neat because all of these phases sort of overlapped and intersected with each other over time. But um, uh, so again, going back to the beginning, that is the death of Muhammad, Muslims believe these hadith or these reports to be a record of his sayings, deeds, and actions. And it's very natural that with the leader of a Muslim community, there are those who are around him who observe what he's doing and who want to transmit that record as a part of the identity of the religious community. And it's important to state here that Arabia in the seventh century was a primarily oral society. There wasn't much that was written down. And so in keeping with that, uh, the oral nature, the oral culture of that uh, society, many of these hadith reports were initially orally transmitted. There were some that were written, uh, but you know, uh, writing was on parchment, bark, camel bone, I mean, bones, uh, uh, et cetera. So th it wasn't a systematic process of collecting and transmitting these hadith. Another important thing to keep in mind that within the first few decades, perhaps even a century uh, after Muhammad's death, the transmission process was not a formalized one necessarily. Some of these hadith were just handed down because people had questions about how it is that they should pray or how it is that they should fast or what Muhammad said about Zoroastrians you know, what he liked to eat, etc. Um, and over time, all of this, this process of transmission became more formalized and professionalized. Niall, as you alluded to, I mean, there was a growth of a specialized body of scholars um, uh, that dealt with these reports, that dealt with their substantive content, that is the mutton, as well as the isnad, that is who is transmitting these uh, reports. Another thing to keep in mind is, and, and sometimes this is confusing, is that after Muhammad's death, and let's say within the first few decades or a century after his death, 
the number of reports proliferated. It grew tremendously. And one might say, how does that happen? You know, the number of reports should be the greatest at the time of his death, because that's when he died. That's when the memory of him is the greatest. But that's not quite what happened. Um, and the reports proliferate or multiply for a number of reasons. One is a simple, straightforward reason that people are fabricating things, that is making up lies about the prophet to support their own political, uh, theological, um, or other positions. Another is that um, the companions, that is those who were closest to Muhammad, um, might remember what he said or what he did in slightly different ways. So there came to be different versions of a particular hadith. Let's take the example of prayer. Someone might have remembered that he prayed the mid-afternoon prayer in a certain way. Someone might have seen that exact same incident but added a few sentences here and there describing it. So all of those versions cause a proliferation of hadith. Another reason is, um, I mean, I talked about fabrication and uh, you know, initially I meant ill-intentioned fabrication. You also have well-intentioned fabrication. Um, uh, perhaps a theological, uh, the leader of a theological school might decide that it would be good to fabricate a few hadith, um, telling his followers to be good in certain ways, but to say, you know, Muhammad said, let's do this, or Muhammad said, let's believe this. So for all these reasons, the numbers of hadith proliferated so that within the first uh, century of Islam, uh, there by the end of the first century of Islamic history, uh, you had hundreds of thousands of hadith that needed to be sifted through. And uh, as this body of scholars grew or developed, they became alarmed about this proliferation and the inability of Muslims to sort through um, uh, what was authentic, true, and what was not. And so they developed what has come to be known as the science or sciences actually of hadith that look at, in very sophisticated ways, actually in very detailed and sophisticated ways, at um, both the transmitters of the hadith, they look at the biographies of the transmitters of hadith to ascertain uh, sort of their life histories, where they traveled, whether they were reliable. I mean, they look at very detailed things like, did this person have a good memory after the age of 50? Or after the age of 60, what was his reputation or her reputation? <laughs> And this is, it becomes a sub-discipline, doesn't it? The Elma Rijal, the, the knowledge of men, which is in a sense the creation from these pious, from these pious uh, uh, motivations of yes. a whole biographical science of working out, as you said, could person X have met person Y? Did they live yes. in the same town to the same place? Or did we know that perhaps one of them passed through on a particular year right. through the, the town of Medina or whatever else it might be? Were they known to be a notorious liar or a, a notoriously pious person with a wonderful memory yes. and all of these different elements? So that, as you said, then, these, these, these various intellectual disciplines, historical uh, yes. literary critical in a sense right. and exactly. certainly kind of tools of historical criticism that, that emerge because of the the great uh, theological, the great moral, 
and ultimately the great legal and exegetical weight that's placed upon the, on the Hadith as mechanisms right. for understanding the Quran and for creating what we'll come to know as Sharia, is the, the laws of Islam, the path which Muslims yes, follow. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it is said that the engagement, the Muslim engagement with Hadith spurred uh, some of the most profound and very diverse um, uh, intellectual activity in Islamic history, leading, again, to the growth of history as a discipline, to, you know, to, to other sub-disciplines within Islamic learning. <laughs> So, so one aspect of this hadith criticism or sciences of hadith look, looks at the narrators. Another aspect looks at the actual content of the hadith, right? I mean, um, you know, what is it that the Prophet is said to have uh, said? Does it make sense? What, is the, what are the implications for law, theology, um, uh, uh, etc.? And then another is devoted more to interpretive activity. Um, so this science, let's say, of uh, hadith transmission and criticism gave rise to what we might call um, a movement or a process of canonizing um, a certain hadith. And I'm really simplifying the history here. But for Sunnis, by the 10th century, uh, there came to be six canonical collections, that is, compilations of hadith that were accepted as being more authoritative than others. And Sunnis uh, call these the Sahih collections in Arabic, and I'll spell that S-A-H-I-H, um, uh, and that is, we might say, the gold standard for Hadith. <laughs> If a, if a hadith is sahih, it's probably true. And I really put the emphasis here on probably because Muslim scholars themselves understood that this was essentially a game of probability. And so sahih hadith are much more likely to be true to the point where Muslims accept them almost on par with the Quran as being authoritative. And of those six collections, there are two known as the Sahih of Bukhari and the Sahih of Muslim that have a, a very special status amongst Muslims. So if you say this is a Sahih that is found in Bukhari, many practicing Muslims will take it to be as true, authentic, authoritative for the derivation of law. And um, from the 10th century onwards, uh, Muslim scholars also became much more concerned with interpretive activity looking at the meaning of hadith for the development of thought, not just in terms of Islamic law, because that's a no-brainer, but with respect to theology, mysticism, literature, even history. I mean, hadith began to play a, uh, a much more varied, variegated role in, different, uh, in the different sub-disciplines of Islamic learning, and um, uh, interpretive activity really um, uh, took hold and flourished from the 10th, 11th century onwards and continues all the way up until the modern period. So for me, as an academic who's interested in Hadith, I mean, one of the most fascinating phenomena is to go to these Hadith learning assemblies that now exist actually in the United States and Europe, but also in places like Morocco, um, uh, well, 
Syria no more, but, uh, we can't visit anymore, but um, uh, across the Middle East and certainly as far east as uh, Indonesia. And there's spontaneous assemblies where a scholar will just sit after um, a, a Friday sermon and interpret certain hadith, and they're more formalized ones that will work through individual compilations, hadith by hadith, and give commentary over the course of a year or multiple years. And, and this is really, in a sense, because one of the, the words that's often used to translate hadith in English is tradition. And I think that's helpful yes. in the sense that tradition from the Latin traditio, something which is passed over or handed down, yes. is precisely what it, we're actually seeing through time. Right. These mechanisms of first oral and then increasingly written means of transmission, but still even to the present day, memorization of, through mm -hmm. this process of, of handing down the hadith themselves, but also these technical disciplines and, and, and skills as well. And as you mentioned, in the it's it's really within two to three hundred years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad in six thirty two, as I've said, the 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 the, the six canonical books, the Kutub al Sitta, the, the the six canonical collections of hadith are formed. And I think what's fascinating about about uh, these these texts for me as a historian in some ways is the fact that several of their authors, Al Bukhari, who you mentioned, uh, Muslim Ibn Al Hajjaj, and Al Tirmidhi are actually born and spend the majority of their lives many hundreds of miles away from not only Mecca and, and, and Medina, where the Prophet Muhammad lived, but indeed from, yeah. from the, the Arab Middle East as such. They're living in, as Bukhari's name um, tells us, he spent most of his life in, in, in Bukhara and memorized a great many uh, hadith when he, he went to Mecca and spent 16, 16 years working on his Sahih collection, his authentic collection, which ultimately had... 7,397 uh, hadith in it, each with their full isnad. So these are a very compendious volumes, aren't they? Yes. And they, they give us a sense of the importance of, uh, of writing and increasingly of paper that's been brought from China through Central Asian Bukhara into the Arab Middle East in this time. So, so there's a great deal intellectually going on around this, this key need to to remember but also ascertain and critically ascertain what it was exactly that the Prophet Muhammad said and did. And talking then about these further regions from which the many of the, the early Hadith scholars have come from, whether from Bukhara and what's now Uzbekistan or from whether from uh, Tirmidh, where at, at Tirmidhi, who dies in 892, Tirmidhi, as it's pronounced nowadays, is on the Uzbek-Afghan border. We also see, of course, that as uh, Muslims' communities emerge in many other parts of the world, not least South Asia, what's now India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and more broadly through the Indian Ocean, Hadith scholarship moves in those different areas as well. And often, yes. in many cases, through the continued importance of Mecca and Medina as, as places where um, where people can go to study hadith so perhaps you could talk us through this in a sense this this next stage and not just in a sense the the proliferation of hadith themselves but the proliferation of hadith experts and hadith scholarship in many different regions of uh, the, the muslim world but also um, among different sectarian communities and indeed different versions of islam yes absolutely and if i could just quickly backtrack Nile to mm, the previous please. question and, and, and a point that you brought up 
um, uh, with respect to the introduction of paper um, uh, and uh, writing. I mean, again, as somebody who uh, considers one of her subspecialties to be in hadith, I mean, this is one of the most fascinating things for me about hadith study, that um, it, the history of hadith transmission intersects with so many other trajectories and histories um, uh, in Islam. So the introduction of paper, for example, had a tremendous impact on the way in which hadith was learned um, and studied and circulated, right? I mean, um, uh, because people could now write down hadith on paper and then send that paper to a faraway land, right? And then somebody could study from that paper rather than the sheikh himself or the sheikha, let's say, the, the woman who was teaching the hadith. It really democratized hadith learning in very, very interesting ways. Um, so I find it a fascinating avenue for studying not just intellectual history, religious history, but social history, the history of of uh, different types of technologies, the movement of, I mean, trade, the movement of ideas, etc. So. Um, I'm hoping that our conversation will spur people in the audience also to explore this history on their own. Um, the, you, know, you asked me about uh, sectarian and regional um, uh, variations, I guess, or discrepancies in terms of the study of hadith, the circulation of it. And yes, um, I, uh, that leads me to say that one point that I didn't make earlier is that most of what I said up until now, especially with respect to the history of hadith, is uh, representative of Sunni hadith history. Sunnis are S-U-N-N-I. Um, uh, the Sunni is, um, is the name of the majority sect in Islam. About 80 to 85% of Muslims today consider themselves to, to be Sunnis. The rest are Shi'is. Um, and uh, so there are differences between Sunni and Shi'i approaches to hadith, the way hadith have been integrated in these two schools. And um, I think that it is fair to say that in the pre-modern period, uh, in Sunni Islam, the culture of hadith transmission is far more important than it is in Shi'i Islam. And um, uh, for example, hadith learning assemblies were um, uh, took place in Sunni um, uh, communities much more than they did in Shi'i communities. But beyond that, I mean, it's also important to remember that in terms of substantive content, especially with hadith that have to do with matters of ritual and law, like for example, how to pray, how to fast, etc., they're the same for the Sunnis and the Shi'is. They don't believe in, like Sunnis don't have a completely separate set of hadith from Shi'is, but what is different is that the narrators, the collective body of people that Sunnis trust to convey hadith, that body is different from what you'll find in, in the Shi'i sources. And that's because Shi'is revere the family of the Prophet more. And so you'll find many more members of the family of the Prophet in Shi'i um, uh, Isnad's chains of transmission than you will in Sunni ones. And also you will find many more reports showing veneration for the family of the prophet in the Shi'i compilations, talking about the miracles of Ali, the son-in-law, uh, the, the cousin um, of the prophet and his uh, daughter Fatima, the prophet's daughter Fatima, who was married to Ali, as well as other members of the, of the family. So 
And, and that's to be expected in a sense, because what yes. what defines Shiism, certainly originally, is 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 that the word Shi comes from the, the Shi'at Ali, the, the the party or the partisans of of yes. Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, and then the looking towards members of the the Prophet's family or indeed Ali's descendants for leadership in the community. So, in a sense, what's happening with with the Shi'is of of, of focusing particular attention on hadith that, that suggests veneration or respect or following the authority of the various imams, as they're called, the members of the Prophet's household and his yes. descendants through through his son-in-law Ali, is a reflection of what's in a sense happening more broadly with hadith among Sunnis, which are used to, to bolster particular theological or, or positions anyway. So the, the Shi'is do that in a particular way but yes. actually the pattern of usage is more broad That's and indeed right. it's rather like you, you, you've you said that, that that there are the actual chain of transmission may be different Yes. Uh, and indeed the actual canonical collections are different, that there, there are six as That's we've true. mentioned the six canonical collections of, of the Sunnis but then the Shi'is have their own yes. uh, the, the, yes, the four right. collections which are different ones but often many of the Hadith will be the same albeit with a different chain yes, of transmission exactly. I mean so on matters of ritual um, uh, in particular the Hadith overlap quite a bit um, but you know as you pointed out Niall I mean there are um, the history of reverence, let's say, a veneration of certain people, and the obverse of that is a vilification of certain people, is going to be uh, uh, different in these two sectarian milieus. So you will find in Sunnism a class of hadith, um, uh, which are, I would say, probably fabrications, praising the Umayyads, right, um, or other political leaders who were not friendly to the Shi'is. And so in, in the Shi'i collections, you will find similarly a number of hadith that vilify those very same people. And um, uh, as might be expected, Muslim scholars have deemed many of these to be forgeries, but they continue to exist and be transmitted in the, in the compilations and tell us something about Islamic history much more than they do about what the Prophet actually said or did. <laughs> So, yes, absolutely. So the Hadith then are essentially, in many ways, I think one can over, overstate. In theory, I suppose, they're important to all Muslims. But of course, because of the nature of the fact that they're transmitted largely through Arabic, there yes. are some translations over the centuries, yes. of course. But but I think, historically speaking, it would be an overstatement to say that all Muslims had access to them because they were highly specialised and transmitted largely through Arabic. But all, let's say denominations of Muslims, whether Shi or Sunni, are indeed Sufi yes. Muslims. And of course, the Sufi follow a mystical tradition that believes that the Prophet handed down a, a, a set of mystical teachings as well as an outward set of, let's say, exterior teachings, legal and, and ethical and behavioral, etc. Sufis can be Shi, ultimately, or Sunni. And many of the, indeed, Ultimately, all of the, the behavioral practices and the particular doctrines of, uh, of the Sufis are, are, are traced back and supported through Hadith as well. So it becomes a, a mechanism or a source of, of authentication for the whole range of, of, of Muslim practices, Shi, Sunni, 
or indeed a Sufi in between them. And there's also that particular category of hadith as well that we haven't mentioned, but perhaps should flag up as well, mm-hmm. called the hadith Qudsi, the yes. so-called sacred or sacrosanct hadith, yes. which these are transmissions of, of uh, let's say, revelations from God, which are extra Quranic. So yes. these aren't hadith that Muhammad said or did. These are, these are things that God revelations from God that weren't in the Quran as well. And yes. some of these tend to be mystical, perhaps more of them tend to be mystical than, than, than others. Exactly. And the Hadith Qudsi is again a, a very tricky category because um, uh, I, I would say they would reside in that space between the Quran and Hadith proper which are authored by companions is what muslims believe is that the hadith qudsi are not they're actually the result of internal inspiration received by the by the prophet and spoken by him Uh, but again as i said the result of a divine intervention or divine inspiration that functioned in a different way from um, uh, the prophet's recitation of the quran and you're absolutely right that there are many hadith qudsi that tend to occur in or inspire um, uh, Sufi thought, um, uh, and that is uh, to be to be expected. I think about the nature of the divine um, and man's relationship with with the divine. So, as we've mentioned, as as Muslim communities emerge in various parts of the world, so does hadith scholarship, at least among a, a small group of people. Broadly speaking, the, 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 the learned specialist and increasingly the, the, the highly literate uh, religious specialists within Islamic societies are known as, as ulama, U-L-A-M-A in English, which literally means simply the learned. And a subcategory of the, of the learned are the, the, the hadith specialists, the muhadith, the people who specialize in hadith. And these emerge in, in, in many places, whether India or Southeast Asia or elsewhere. In many cases, uh, in all cases, in fact, they will have to learn Arabic in order to to even begin the the specialist study of Hadith. And in many cases, they will they will travel to Mecca and Medina. One celebrated example in India is Abdul Haq Dehlavi, who, be, which is to say, Abdul Haq of Delhi, who becomes known as Al uh, Muhadith, the, the the Hadith collector, who spends a couple of years in Mecca, travels across the Indian Ocean and studies in Mecca, and indeed studies actually as a, a Sufi, member of the Qadri Sufi Brotherhood, studying Hadith, then going back to India, transmitting many Hadith, but also, in fact, writing uh, a famous biography of many of the Sufi holy men uh, of India and elsewhere. So this kind of nexus of Sufi Islam, Hadith collection, the spread uh, of, of, of Hadith scholarship through many areas is, is deeply entangled. But another uh, very major, obviously, social group, 50%, let's say, of of Muslim (laughs) through history, I think we can uh, fairly guess, is women. And women from early in uh, Islamic history, and indeed from the time of the Prophet Muhammad himself, of of course, from his own family, were collectors of Hadith and transmitters of Hadith. But as your, your book on the subject shows, this wasn't an innate position of women in Islam, let's say, which was either better than we might expect or not as good as we might expect. As you've explained, there, there were fluctuating fortunes of female Hadith collectors that were shaped by changes in the importance of literacy, the professionalisation of the scholar class, 
and so on. So could you talk us through the role then? Because all of the figures we've mentioned, I've mentioned, we've both mentioned yes. so far have been men. Have been so men. tell us about some of the, the, the women Hadith scholars. Absolutely. So the first thing that I want to say about this, and I think it is surprising to most, is that um, there are actually female religious scholars in Islam, and they have existed from the very beginnings of uh, Islamic history all the way up to the modern period. And what's fascinating about Hadith study is that this is really the field of learning in which women excelled, I would say, the most as compared to all other fields of religious learning in Islam, that is Islamic law, theology, exegesis, etc. So um, women played a number of roles within this uh, field as transmitters of Hadith, uh, that, that is, those who may not know about the technical sciences of Hadith, but were just reproducing it. Um, for future generations as teachers of hadith, that is those who did know the um, uh, all of the sub-disciplines of hadith learning and also as interpreters. Now we don't know as much about women's hadith commentary and to me that is one of the most exciting emerging fields as we become more engaged with Islamic manuscripts and as that field of study grows there is tremendous potential for finding uh, women's commentary in the margins of hadith collections. Um, and I've already seen a few examples in Morocco, which are, which are really fascinating. So um, a, a quick sketch, um, the, one, the most famous, I would say, hadith transmitter, the hadith, female hadith transmitter par excellence is, of course, Aisha bin Zabi Bakr, uh, one of the uh, uh, well-known wives of uh, Muhammad Sunnis say the favorite wife of Muhammad. Um, uh, she say otherwise, but she's uh, actually one of the most prolific transmitters of tradition, male or female, in early Islamic his history. And uh, one of the interesting things about her is that she is known for understanding the legal uh, significance of hadith. So not just reporting what she saw about Muhammad, but being able to interpret it and it's it interpret individual reports and their significance for the community. There are a number of uh, female hadith transmitters in the first few generations for reasons um, that are complex, but interesting, I mean, the, the number of women kind of um, uh, declines, the number of women who participated in this declines a bit in the ninth uh, and 10th centuries, but then women reemerge in this field. Um, it, the tradition of female hadith transmission and scholarship continues through the centuries. For example, in Mamluk, Syria, in the area of Damascus in the 14th century, you have this wonderful, fascinating woman named Zainab bint al-Kamal. She appears in the historical records as a woman who collected a camel load of Hadith learning certificates. And she appears in hundreds and hundreds of compilations as being a teacher of Hadith to um, uh, some very well-known scholars. I'll end with a much more recent example. I had the privilege, the really wonderful privilege of meeting a female hadith transmitter in Morocco um, in 2016, just before her death, Sheikha Bahia. And 
When I met her, she was 108 years old. And she really was known and she'd acquired a reputation over the decades of being one of the most learned authorities in Hadith in the Muslim world, certainly in North Africa. She studied with some of the greatest scholars in North Africa. One of one was one of the first uh, was one of the few female students to attend classes in Zaytuna University in Tunisia. And um, uh, you know she she passed away in 2016, but her example is, I think, a really, a vivid one of how the tradition of hadith learning continues down to today. Um, uh, and I think is, is a very uh, uh, good way for us to understand how hadith continues to function in modern Muslim communities. <laughs>